Would you open your Bibles with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2? 1 Timothy chapter 2 as we continue our sermon series, My True Child, Instructions for the Church from 1 Timothy. And we'll remember that this is a very personal letter, an intimate letter. Paul writing to his son in the ministry, Timothy, and giving him instructions to pastor the church at Ephesus. As part of my job, I get to have a lot of conversations. Uh, Some people might say, I talk too much. Can I get an amen? (laughs) All right, maybe that wasn't funny, uh, but I do. And uh, I I talk about all sorts of things with people, you know, pastor things, but also regular life things, because I'm a regular guy with a regular family. And, uh, you know, some of those conversations, you come away going, all right, okay, good. Others, you come away going, wow, I'm thankful I had that conversation. Some of them are heartbreaking. You never know. It depends on the day. But I want to tell you about one just real quickly. And uh, I I think he's nice enough that I can get away with this, and that's Bob Gubser. Bob and I got to share breakfast a few weeks ago at the Village Inn over on Van Dorn near 48th there. And it was just a wonderful opportunity to sit down with a Christian brother. A man who I've known for, I guess, 12 years since I've been around here. Done some business with him when he owned his own business and stopped in and visited with him and talked with him and prayed with him over the phone and with all the things with Ruth, his wife, and her health over these years. Ruth passed away not too long ago. And this was me with a brother I love and respect saying, hey, can we get together and just talk? Obviously, from a pastor's perspective, I wanted to see how's he doing. But I tell you what, I came away from the conversation with Bob encouraged. And I just have to say thank you for that to Bob. Because there's something that happens when brothers or brethren, brothers and sisters in Christ, get together and talk. And it might be just talking about life and just talking about how things are going. And obviously, there's a lot of transition for Bob right now. I mean, you and Ruth were married 50... 50 years. Yep, 50 years. You can't imagine that. I can't imagine that. But he handled himself with such grace and such dignity, as well as the fact that we enjoyed ourselves and had a few laughs as well, that I came away from that conversation and I wrote him not too many days after that. We need to do that again. Thank you, Bob. Thank you. A conversation with Bob just was that encouraging to me. Prayer is a conversation. Just like you talk to someone you know here on earth, there's back and forth in a conversation, there's give and take, there's here and there topics, there's questions and answers, there's laughter, there's tears. It depends on the moment. Some conversations are different than others. But prayer is a conversation. And you've got to admit of the people you know here on earth, some of them are better conversationalists than others. Uh, maybe their skill, maybe their personality, maybe their consideration, maybe maturity or humility, maybe instinct, maybe their walk with Jesus that makes them a better conversationalist. And of course, conversation always seems easier with the person you know well, doesn't it? The more you know them, hopefully the easier it is to have a conversation rather than more difficult. Conversations. But prayer is a conversation. However, it's not just a conversation with another human, another created being. Prayer is a conversation with the Creator. Amen. And as we pray, we've got those same factors in mind. How well do we know God? Obviously, He knows us intimately, better than we know ourselves. 
And then we've got to consider that we are talking to the creator of the universe. And as gracious as he is, that we are his created, we should give extra consideration in how we talk to him. And that's where this passage of scripture this morning comes in. One commentator said that uh, verses 2 through 8 that we're going to cover this morning uh, go back to the theme of 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, where Paul is giving Timothy advice on here's how you're to lead the church and here's how Christian people are to conduct themselves. But this one is not so much a direction for the church itself, but for individual believers in their relationship with God in the conversation that is prayer. So I'm going to ask you, if you're able to stand, would you stand with me in the honor of reading God's Word as we read 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, and I'll read from the New International Version. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men. The testimony given its proper time. And for this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands and prayers without anger or disputing. Pray with me. Our Father, we thank you so much for your word. That by your sovereignty, you had folks so long ago write down your messages to the church and to believers And that those messages have been preserved throughout time without error in a manner in which we can uh, treat them as authoritative even today and learn from them. And we thank you that though Paul is writing to a specific situation, he's writing timeless truth and truth that we can learn from today. We pray that you speak to us about prayer. It's in Jesus' name we offer these prayers. And everyone said... Amen. The very fact that we can pray, that we can be in relationship with God, that the God of the whole universe loves us and invites us into a love relationship with Him that is real and personal is rooted in God's grace. And that's our scripture memory verse for the month. Our scripture memory verse for the month, uh, Miss Leslie will put up there, it's 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 14, and let's say it together. 1 Timothy 1, 14. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 1, 14. It's this grace that God pours out on us through Jesus, and it's coupled with faith and love, in order to draw us into a love relationship with Him. So let's look at the first point on your outline this morning, and that's this, that praying for everyone pleases God. Praying for everyone pleases God. Turn your eyes to verse 1 with me. 
I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone. There's this word urge. It means, it's, it's perikaleo. It literally means to entreat, to command. And he says then, and the then is a transition from what he's talked about before. He's building upon his purpose of how to be in relationship with God and how to relate with others. It very well may be that the heretics, the false teachers that he's told Timothy he needs to be ready to face, are so stubborn that Paul thinks, eh, not only do I need to tell him how to oppose the false teachers, but I need to take an aside here and talk to him about his personal relationship with Jesus and how he communicates with uh, Jesus in prayer in order to strengthen himself to be ready for the opposition in the battle that he's going to fight. And so then he uses four different words. In my NIV, they're request, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving. Yours may use some different words, petitions maybe. That's a deep sense of spiritual need. When you come to God asking Him to do something you know you can't do for yourself. Those probably are the type of prayers we need to pray more often. When we realize that I can't and only God can. Or when we say, even though I should, I probably shouldn't. I should take my hand off of that and I should say, God, can you solve that problem for me? Or God, instead of trying to change myself, can you change me? Intercessions, where we ask God to do things based on a deep spiritual need. Prayer, that word's the most common word uh, for any type of cognate for prayer, but the one used here in Greek is. And then it says intercession, that Jesus did this for us in Hebrews 7.25, and it's a common word as well of one person praying for another. And then Paul adds thanksgiving. This attitude of gratitude that accompanies our prayers is we in our humility realize that we're appealing to the God of the whole universe and we ask Him with thanksgiving to do these things. And then He says, for everyone. Now, there's 7 billion people on this planet. And I don't think uh, we can know them all or name them all. And, you know, if you did that thing, if one person passed in front of you every one second, how long would it take? I don't know, a long time. Uh, I didn't do the math yet. And so you can't necessarily pray for everyone. When my one professor I told you about, Dr. Shields, the silver fox that had the silver flat top, he would get on us and he would say, Now, boys, we don't need any guat prayers. Guat, I thought. I thought he was talking about guacamole, you know, something like that. That your prayers were green and squishy and didn't have any real substance, even though there might be something good in them, because, you know, there's healthy fat in guacamole, right? Or avocados. And we like everybody else. Anybody else like avocados? Guacamole? Yeah. I'm all about the guacamole. But he said, Guat, G W O T, God, the world, and other things. What he meant was as a pastor, that every time you pray, you don't need to pray around the entire world. You pray for what you need to pray for. You know, and when you pray for asking God's uh, thanks for a meal, you don't have to pray around the whole world. You can thank God for the meal. It could be simple. When you pray with somebody for a need, you don't have to pray around the whole world. You can just pray for the need. And so there's times when we need to think about how we pray and why we pray. And even though Paul says to pray for everyone, he doesn't mean specifically. And he doesn't mean all the time, i.e. the whole world specifically. We're going to get to his expression of that further in a moment. 
But I have a question for you, and that's your first question on your outline there. And that is, who is someone I should be praying for? We always try to apply God's Word to our life here. That's why I generally ask a question after every statement I make and every sermon you hear me preach, right? Because I want to take God's truth and apply it to our situation and say, now what about you? What are you going to do with this? And so that's what I'm doing right here, friends. Is there someone specific in your life that God has said to you, even in the past few minutes when I've been talking, you need to start praying for this person? If not, ask him right now. I'm going to stop talking. You just, in your mind, pray and ask God, who should I start praying for that I don't pray for regularly? Go ahead. My hope, obviously, is that by His Spirit, God, even in this moment when I set it up, you went, yeah, I should pray for that person. I don't pray for them enough, or I don't pray for them at all. Because God asks us to pray for everyone. We can't pray for the whole world, but we can pray for certain people that He asks us to pray for. And so let's do that. Go on to verse 2. Now, notice then he goes from the very broad everyone to a specific for kings and all those in authority that we may live a peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. And we may say, well, what in the world, Paul? I mean, that seems like, I mean, is that like some class division that you go from everyone to just praying for kings and those in authority? All people are made in God's image, that's true. But God either caused or allowed certain people to rise to levels of leadership, whether that's your boss, your company owner, your board of directors, uh, you know, senators, governors, police officers, whoever, those in authority, we, they have a special role given by God, and we should honor them in that role. Now, write down Romans 13, 1 through 7. If you want to read where Paul says, here's how we're supposed to respond to the government, you read Romans 13, 1 through 7, because Paul says God put them in place, and you're to honor them. You're to pay your taxes for them. You're to obey them. You're to respect those officials. You may not always agree with them, but you can be respectful in the way even you disagree with them. And why does he say to do this? Because those in authority have some influence of how we live here. Look at the second part of verse 2, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Now, Paul knows that a quiet life is not one without conflict. There's going to be some noise. There's going to be issues. But he's talking about the manner in which you seek to live your life, that your habit is one of humility and that you're seeking the ideal. 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12 says, and to make your ambition, make it to your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Make it your own business or mind your own business, he said there. you got to like that. I think some of us would have more quiet lives if we weren't putting our nose in other people's business. Can I get an amen? Maybe we need to get off social media more and uh, in God's word more and focus on how God would have us to live. So your application question for your second point. Excuse me, I didn't make the second point, did I? The second point is praying for those in authority pleases God. Leslie was waiting on me. Thank you, ma'am. Praying for those in authority pleases God. And your question for that 
is why would God ask me to pray for leaders? I think I made that case for you already, but you can write it in your own words as why he would ask you to pray for leaders. Let's move on to verses 3 and 4. Verses 3 and 4 leads to your third point, that praying for the salvation of others pleases God. Praying for the salvation of others pleases God. Look at verse 3. This is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of truth. That good connects it with the idea of prayer and pleases God our Savior. Well, we know that Jesus is actually our Savior, but God is the author of that salvation, the originator of that salvation, and it was through Jesus, His Son. And so there's nothing wrong theologically with that phrase. It's just Paul worded it a little differently to make us think a little differently. But then look at verse 4. Verse 4 The God, our Savior, who wants all men to be saved. A verse like this is the root of argument between factions in the church called Calvinists and Armenians. Calvinists may believe that God elected some to salvation, and they may even believe that God elected others uh, to damnation. Um, And then there's Armenians that would believe that grace is available for all and all should be saved. And this isn't a sermon about that, but from the 17th century forward, there's been this debate based on a passage of Scripture like this, that God wants all men to be saved. I mean, all means all, right? It doesn't qualify all of a certain type of man, all those who are called, all those who are elected. But right here, Paul says, all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of truth. So the theological debate aside, let's come back to you practically and ask the question there. And that is, who do I need to pray for and talk to? When it comes to being evangelical, we go to a Baptist church. We're evangelical believers. We have a gospel invitation every Sunday in order that people might respond to the message of Christ. We don't just want to train people to be evangelical and think about evangelism. We don't just want to pray for the lost friends, but we want to make friends and we want to build relationships that can bear the weight of the gospel. That phrase came to me from Clarence Gillette, who works with ISF. Clarence Gillette, years ago, as I was talking to him at one of the times in which Southview hosted an ISF International Student Fellowship dinner, And he's a former missionary, and he lives in my neighborhood, and he's just a wonderful Christian gentleman. And I was having a conversation with Clarence because I noticed the way that students reacted to him and that they treated him with respect. Well, he treated them with respect. And it might have been the fact that he has gray hair and he's a little balding, and maybe he's in his 70s. But there was a manner in which the students talked to Clarence that I said, Clarence, tell me about this student. How long have you known this one? And how long have you been in relationship with this one? And how have you built these relationships And one phrase I remember from that conversation is the one I just alluded to a minute ago. He said, Pastor Aaron, we try to build a relationship with these students that is strong enough to bear the weight of the gospel so that we can share the gospel that changes lives with them. And I thought, wow, what intentionality Clarence has in mind 
that he wants to love them in Jesus and meet their needs that, you know, maybe a trip to Walmart or maybe helping them do this, that, or the other as they come to America. But he wants to build a relationship with them in order that he might, as he shared Christ's love with them, he might express Christ's ultimate love in salvation with them to bear the weight of the gospel. And friends, I wonder, because when we did our church survey about a month and a half ago, and we asked a specific question, what hinders you from inviting lost friends or friends to church? We didn't even say lost. And the number one answer was that you don't have any friends that are lost that need Jesus. And the number two answer, just the flip side of the same coin, was that all your friends had their own church. It clearly said to me, and I'm pointing out to you because I'm guilty of it as well, that even though it is good for you to be in relationship with other believers in Jesus, and we want you to be in relationship that challenges you and grows you and keeps you accountable and you learn from them, that our church as a whole very well may need to say, we need to get more friendly with people that don't know Jesus. You don't need to go to the bar with them and do the things you shouldn't be doing. But there's a whole lot of stuff you can do that is not sinful in order to build a relationship with somebody so that you can bear the weight of the gospel and we can share Jesus with them and see their lives changed. How many lost friends do you have? And of the friends that you have, do you know that they are lost? Have you even got to a gospel conversation where you found out the easy way in is to say, hey, where do you go to church? And then you kind of come in with, uh, well, uh, who's the pastor there? If they can't name the pastor, they probably don't go too often. Or you can just ask them, well, how often do you go to church? Um, you know, what's that like? Uh, what kind of things do you, you know, how's that make an impact on your life? And you just have a conversation. And you test the waters to see if they know Jesus is their personal Savior. And you can share the gospel right then and there, or you build towards it. But that's why I ask the question this way. Who do I need to pray for? Paul told us to pray for people, but also to talk to. And maybe more than that, I need to write, maybe you should amend my question right and build a relationship with. In order that we might share the gospel with others. A friend of mine, Richard Hamlet, who is an evangelist by trade, said evangelism is not saving the world, but rather proclaiming the gospel so that sinners in the world can be saved. When we talk about those gospel conversations, a pastor friend of mine, Gary Smith, said this, there are three rules. He said, listen more than you talk. Some of us need to write that one down. Are you listening right now? You are. You're doing great. Listen more than you talk. Two, humble yourself. Talk about their stuff. Humble yourself. Talk about their stuff. And three, don't impose. It's not about you. That we should be in relationships in which we could share the gospel in order to change lives. Let's move on in our passage of Scripture. Verse 5, 6, and 7. So Paul, because of where he's at, he does one of these Pauline things and he takes a, a little aside, an excursus, if you will. And he comes aside and he talks about who it is that saves us. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying. And a teacher of the true faith for the Gentiles. So your fourth point on your outline is that praying for others reflects God's character. 
We are to pray for others. We're specifically to pray for their salvation. But it reflects God's character for us to pray for others because it's God that wants all men to be saved, coming from verse 4. But then as we move into verse 5, one God, one mediator between God and man, Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He gave himself as a ransom. He paid the price for others to be set free. Some of you might need to write that word ransom down. We see dramatic movies about it, right? But have we ever thought about the fact that Jesus paid the ransom for us? That He paid the price to set us free from the penalty of our sins? That He paid the price to give us eternal life and abundant life? To change our life forever? That ransom that Jesus paid for us. There's that curious phrase at the end of verse 6. The testimony given in its proper time. Uh, Even the best scholars say that the phrase is imprecise and it's hard to understand even in the Greek syntax. But the best idea is that it's referring to God's timing in sending Jesus into the world when he did. Think about how it pairs together with Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 and 5. You can write that down, Galatians 4, 4 and 5. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem, that's pay the price for, ransom for, those under the law that we, everyone who believes, might receive the adoption of sonship. That God sent Jesus into the world at just the right time. Historians can look at the world, even if they're not believers in Jesus, and they can see the ebb and flow of history, and they can see, you know what? God sent Jesus at just the right time in order that with uh, the Roman Empire, the gospel might spread through Roman roads and the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, that allowed there to go. And then, of course, when the emperor adopted Christianity, that was not necessarily the best thing as the state religion. But the spread of Christianity was, as you might expect, by God's purpose. In verse 7, Paul says, And for this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle. So, herald is someone that proclaims. An apostle is a sent out one, one that had been with Jesus. And then he uses this other interesting phrase, I'm telling the truth. The New Living Translation says, I'm not exaggerating, I'm just telling the truth. It seems that Paul was defending himself even not just to Timothy, but knowing that Timothy would read the letter to the church at Ephesus, and knowing in that church there would be some of those folks who were probably the leaders of the false doctrines and fake gospel rings, and as Timothy would be reading it, they'd be sitting there with their arms crossed like this, and they'd be mumbling to the other person who thinks like the Apostle Paul, who does he think he is? And they're trying to undermine the whole way, so Paul inserts this parenthetical statement, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, for these people, not for Timothy, for any of us that have doubts, for any of us that have fears or questions, and we're not quite sure about this guy, Paul, that he was a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. Maybe this Ephesus church was made up mostly of Jewish folks. They were Jewish by culture and religion and by birth, and they'd converted to faith in Christ. And that, of course, as you remember, is, uh, could be the most likely root of the false teachings and the fake gospel. And so he's saying, yes, I'm talking to you, church made up mostly of previously Jewish, or Jewish people by nationality uh, and Jewish by religion, but now followers of Jesus. But God's got a special mission for me. So Paul's defending himself to those listening. So let's come back to our point, though. Praying for others reflects God's character, and let's ask the application question. How am I most Christ-like? 
in your life, how are you most Christ-like? When is the time that if somebody were to, you know, pull up their iPhone and take a quick little video of you, that they would see you behaving most Christ-like? You could say, oh, it's when I'm sitting at church in my Sunday best. Now, come on. Is that really when you're your most Christ-like? I hope, in fact, that, you know, you feel close to God as you worship here because other brothers and sisters are together and we lift our voices together and we have instruments to lead us as well. I hope you feel Christ-like here. But I would hope that you could say, you know, last week when I was in that really tough situation and the Holy Spirit showed up and gave me the strength to make it through, that's when I was most Christ-like. I would hope you would say, you know, a, a, a day or two ago, I didn't know what to say. And then it was like God brought something to my mind, the Holy Spirit. And I said it in a way that was loving and kind. And it really wasn't me because I wanted to clobber the person, Pastor Aaron. That's when you were most Christ-like. That you could give an example from your life, maybe not in the easiest circumstances, but the most difficult. The one when you were in the most pain, when you had the most fear, but you knew that God was there and God was present. And you were most Christ-like. God tells, or Paul tells us that our character reflects God's when we pray. Let's move on to our last point, And that is that we're praying in purity worships God. Take careful note of verse 8 with me. I, went men, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. Your Bible might even have a therefore in there. So after establishing Jesus' authority and His authority, Paul returns to the topic of prayer. And you note, I'm sure you did, because of the culture we live in, that you went, hey, wait a second. Why does He just say, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer? Don't women get to lift up holy hands in prayer? Have you read the next few verses? Look at verse 9. I know it's not part of my sermon this week. It'll be next week's sermon. But let's just foreshadow a little bit, okay? It'll be fun. Come on. Verse 9. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes. What? What in the world is he talking about? We'll get there next week. Come back. Join us. But with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. And then go on. Again, if you just leave this here and don't have a cultural understanding of what it meant then to apply it to today, you would think Paul is a chauvinist pig. A lot of people say that, but they don't have a good enough understanding. Look at verse 11. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach her to have authority over a man. She must be silent. And then he goes on to make this argument from Adam, and it is deep and it is confusing. I'm thankful that a few years ago I had a doctoral class in which I took up the role of uh, writing a paper on the role of women in ministry. And this is one of our key texts. And you may not have been here three and a half years ago when I wrote the, uh, that paper and then I shared it as a sermon series. And so we're going to get a view of it next week. So the reason Paul isolates and just says, I want men to lift up holy hands... In verse 8 is because he's about to tell us a whole bunch more about what he would expect of ladies in worship. And we're going to talk about that uh, next week, but I'll just tell you a little bit why he has all these verses about women here, but just one verse about men. In Ephesus in particular, women were involved in temple worship in a manner that did not glorify God. 
So in Ephesus in particular, where this church was located, Paul had to give special warnings to ladies about the way they conducted themselves as believers in Jesus versus the way of their worshiping in their pagan religion. We'll get there more next week. I need to move on and get back to our point. So please know Paul is not being sexist. Paul is talking. He's an equal opportunity. Hey, I'm giving advice. But because of the situation, he's got to give special advice to ladies in the church at Ephesus here. So come back to verse 8. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer. So holy hands, in that day and time, praying with your hands up was a common gesture. When I first got to Africa as a missionary 20-something years ago, my first worship service, you know, I was so excited to go to a church and we're, uh, you know, having church in a tent with the dirt floor and everything like that in the squatter camp. And, uh, you know, we sing our songs and they're all in these words I don't understand and everybody's singing louder than I've heard white people ever sing before, no offense, y'all. But African people have a way to sing with some more life in them than most of us do. And um, I was just loving it. You know, somebody's whispering in my ear, here's what this song means, here's what this song means. And I'm just trying to sing along and I'm, I'm, I'm me, so I'm crying as well. And then the pastor gets up and he says some words and he says, let us pray. Everybody bowed their head, but then some people threw up their arms. Some people fell down on the ground, and they start all praying all at the same time, all loudly out loud. And I am going, whoa, nobody prepared me for this thing. This is like babbly words, because this guy's speaking in Hosea, this guy's speaking in Zulu, this guy's speaking in Swana, this guy's speaking in English because he wants me to hear it. I mean, all these different languages, and they're loud, and we're in this tent, and I'm like, holy moly, I've never heard prayer like this in my life. And I'm thinking, this makes it very difficult for me to pray, because I was not used to praying this way, right? This was their custom. This was their habit. And although it seemed to me like that guy was trying to outscream that guy, or that guy was trying to dance a little more than that guy, once I got to know them, I found out it wasn't about performance. It was their culture. And it was them expressing their heart in passionate prayer, just like they had expressed their heart just two minutes before in passionate singing. So it took me a little while to get used to it, and then for me to be able to like focus my brain in so that I could pray and not be distracted by them, particularly once I started learning some Zulu and Swananghosa words, because then I'd be like, oh, I know that word. I know, oh, wait, i got to pray about what i got to pray, not about what they're saying. Their habit was different. Paul talks here, and he says their habit was lifting up holy hands in prayer, and it was not that the gesture made their hands holy, but it was their hearts given to God that made their hands holy. Friends, we need to remember that as well when we think about our lives. It's not just pure actions, but pure motives that make Christian worship. It's not just that you attend a worship service that means you have worshipped. You may have sat in the pew in this room, but unless your heart is devoted to God and you are humble before Him, as He directs you in this service, not as I direct you or Myra directs you or anyone else, but as He directs you, you haven't worshipped unless you've been right before God in this place, not another person in this place. And it's not your actions, 
but your motives. Which leads to my question. What are my motives in prayer? I mean, in general, in a broad sense, what are your motives in prayer? If you're honest, you might be like, uh, kind of for myself. Maybe you'd be totally honest, be like, totally for myself. Maybe not. Maybe you've got enough maturity about you. Maybe you're a parent. And your motives in your prayer is that you'd do right and your kids would follow God and they'd grow up right and God would take care of your family and provide for your needs. I don't know. But I need to ask that question based on this scripture because although the scripture in that situation is addressed to men, it's addressed to every one of us and it says to lift up holy hands in prayer and then it has this qualifying statement without anger or disputing. In other words, without wrong attitudes, without sin-soiled hands, that our hearts are right as we lift up our hands because what are they? Not just lifted hands out of habit, but they're holy hands. And it's not just that the hands are lifted that makes them holy. It's the heart that is lifting them that makes them holy. The heart that is submitted to God, that has confessed its sin, and asked God to guide in prayer and what glorifies Him. That our motives would be pure. Praying in purity worships God. How do I get myself pure? By submitting myself to God, confessing my sins, asking Him to purify me. So Paul writes to us in these eight verses about prayer as a relationship. And he reminds us that each and every one of us, if we've trusted Christ as our personal Savior and is in relationship, a love relationship with God. And he gives us advice on how to please God. Let's pray together now. Our Father, we have to confess that we don't always get it right. Matter of fact, many times we get it wrong. That we pray with wrong motives. We pray with impure, sin-stained hearts and hands. And so, Father, we appeal to your grace. That grace that saves us is also the grace that carries us and sustains us. And we pray, Father, that as we submit ourselves to you, your Holy Spirit might shine the spotlight of your righteousness into our life and that we would confess that to you and seek to turn from that sin and repentance. Father, we pray if there's a person here today that has understood their own sinfulness and needs to ask Christ to be their Savior, that they would do so right now, confessing their sin and asking Jesus to save them. And Father, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, it's our prayer that we would be honest and humble before you. And as we submit ourselves to you, that you would bless our lives as only you can and guide us, we pray. It's in Jesus' name, amen.